0: You're listening to the transformative podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. the Red Set Transformative podcast and what better way to usher in this season of peace and goodwill than with a discussion of the international arms trade. So I'm Rosamund Johnston and today I'm joined by Ned Richardson-Little, a Freigeist Fellow at the University of Erfurt, currently heading a research project called The Other Global Germany, Deviant Globalisation and Transnational Criminality in the 20th Century. Ned has published numerous articles, from what I can see, and perhaps most importantly, in 2020, a book called The Human Rights Dictatorship, Socialism, Global Solidarity, and Revolution in East Germany with Cambridge University Press, no less. So Ned, it is a real delight to have you joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's turn to your current work on the arms trade. Most often, I think, when discussing the arms trade, there's different kind of ways of thinking about this, from black market sales, which would be totally illegal, to grey market sales, which might be right on the cusp. Yet you don't go for that kind of better known vocabulary. You are discussing and focusing on, from what I can see, the illicit arms trade. So can I ask about that choice of term, what it means, and then why you would choose it and favour it over perhaps some more conventional vocabulary?
1: in the case of something like a black market, I think that can also really conjure up ideas about some kind of contained system of illegality, one that is often understood to be outside of the realm of normal, licit behavior, and also outside of the normal realm of legal actors, and that there can be sort of a clean division between the normal market and the black market. Maybe it's my background as a German historian, just for the black market for me, there's really this image of a guy in a raincoat holding his coat open to show he's got a bunch of Rolexes and can get you some tires in spite of rationing regime or something. In terms of the gray market, I think it's also a term which has very specific technical meanings, in some cases legally, but it's also one that's pretty wide and vague, both for my own project and for the research group as a whole, looking at both ideas about deviance and the illicit helps to expand the scope and to really look at the different ways in which not just illegal activity, but also activity which is meant to be breaking the spirit of the law, not just the actual text of it, trying to evade different legal prohibition systems, control regimes, and then also the ways in which different action can be understood through different means in different spaces. Think about these sort of clashes of different normative understandings between spaces, between countries, between cultures. So in this way, trying to look at illicit arms trade is really just trying to take a big, wide focus at everything from extremely clear black market illegal activity up to corporations carefully tweaking some of their technical designs because they know some market somewhere might be able to use it if they do so.
0: A really striking point that you made when you presented your work to us last week was that you can't really disentangle and you shouldn't really disentangle the illicit arms trade from the totally official above board arms trade. So my question to you is, why not? And then perhaps because you're taking this long term view, do you find differences in the relationship between the illicit and the totally above board arms trade over the 20th century, which is your time period you're looking at?
1: If we look over the last 150 years or so, the fact that manufacturers have always had problems of being tied up in scandals about illicit activity. If we go back to the colonial period, arms manufacturing companies are incredibly active in lobbying for diplomatic protection. For their trade in certain regions where other imperial powers claimed that their actions were leading to destabilization rebellion, you have similar situations nowadays where legal arms manufacturers are found to have subsections which have gone rogue, resulting in completely legal transfers of military-grade rifles to specific police forces, and then somehow people within their company managed to divert those to other regions that were in conflict leading to scandal eventually when these weapons are used in mass killings, suppression of protesters, other different actions. A lot of these large corporations have found a way to really have their cake and eat it too, that they can exist in the broad legal market while at the same time, through various means and various degrees of legal liability, dipping their toe into the illegal market where they can have higher profits and expand market share into other regions. And going beyond manufacturers, I think when we look at the middlemen throughout this, that arms merchants are involved in very diverse sets of trading practices. Some of them are, on the one hand, very willing to engage in the black market in certain regions, at other times working with respectable government purchasers. It really depends on the time and space and the extent to which you want to actually sort of cast dispersions on some actors, where a legal seller is going to a merchant trader in another part of the world where they really should plausibly understand that these guns are going to be diverted to an illegal market. What moral legal standard are people held to?
0: As someone who's also working on the arms trade, I would be really interested in kind of how you factor in morality, I suppose, to your research and the role played by morality. So this is maybe just a question to you personally about sort of what role should morality and can morality play in an academic study of transfers of highly harmful, often deadly materials and substances?
1: I don't think we can get rid of the normative factor entirely in doing this sort of academic work, nor do I think we should. In general, the illicit arms trade is seen as something bad. For people who are interested in liberation struggles and rebellions against oppressive regimes, having arms available is seen as a good thing. People don't want to really think through how they arrive on the scene. But when you look at different forms of civil conflict, colonial uprisings... That the illicit arms trade is an incredibly important source of weapons for these conflicts. So we have these really conflicting moral perspectives where a conflict is good, but the actual arms are bad because of the way they were transferred under certain circumstances, according to certain perspectives. This has come up around Ukraine and Russia. This problem on the one hand that the international arms trade is evil and leads to conflict. But at the same time, the pressure now to transfer arms as rapidly as possible to Ukraine as a way to conclude a conflict. So in this way, the sort of moral question that's coming up, I think in all of the projects we're doing as part of the research group, where we can acknowledge the shifting nature of moral understandings of these different activities and different items in question, especially when we look at the late 19th century, when this is really the period when international control regimes and prohibition regimes emerge due to new forms of moral campaigning. I think there's also nothing wrong with making clear your own perspective so long as it's there and not confused with that of the actors you're trying to study.
0: A key uh, category that I've heard you use before is that of the German arms firm. And I wanted to discuss, because you're taking this really kind of exciting long view, what a German arms firm can mean and does mean to you. So one particular moment where that might be a difficult term would be this sort of interwar period where Germany as far as I understand it, after the Treaty of Versailles, can't make arms. And so lots of German arms producers go to, for example, Switzerland or Czechoslovakia to make them instead. But is that still a German arms firm? And how can you think about, I suppose, the innately transnational nature of a lot of these actors through the prism of Germany?
1: That's a really great question, because I think one of the problems when we look at the globalisation of these different forms of international trade, we also start seeing the globalisation of their manufacturing that this is when we start seeing these international supply chains coming about and distribution of manufacturing, distribution of assembly, all these things. So on one hand, we can talk about German firms because they originated in the country, and we can look at sort of genealogically. But in reality, that stops making sense once you look at companies that have lock, stock and barrel completely moved somewhere else and cease to have any real functional connection with their home original home country. On the other hand, one of the problems we get into with the arms trade and both the moral campaigning and the international regulation – is that these are done on a national basis. If you look at a ship full of guns owned by a German company, insured by a British company, with French sailors on board that picked up guns in Poland that were originally made in Germany but are now being produced by a factory in Czechoslovakia, you can end up multinationalizing all of these operations very quickly. But when it comes to actual enforcement, the politics of this, it becomes very quickly national because someone has to take the blame. Someone has to take the legal liability. In all these cases, this problem of trying to look at a globalised industry through a national lens is one that we still have to retain because of the politics of enforcement and diplomacy.
0: In the presentation you gave us, it went from the late 19th century pretty much to the present day. So can you talk, I suppose, about what, why you chose to take that really impressively long-term view of the German arms industry and then what you have to dismiss or get rid of on account of that very long durée approach.
1: Simultaneously in the academic literature, there was a number of works that were coming out in recent years on globalization since the 1990s and the fear of illicit globalization, mafia globalization, all these different terminologies, negative cosmopolitanism and the idea that good globalization is being swamped by bad globalization or the idea that bad globalization is inevitably part of this. At the same time, there was also a lot of interesting literature coming up about the late 19th century and the lead up to World War One, and this era of globalization and the rise of arms trafficking and prohibition. People like Jonathan Grant's work and then also on the rise of drug regulation, fears about white slavery and this proliferation of these early agreements trying to regulate bad things happening across borders. At the same time, then this idea that there's sort of a missing gap between these two periods, You have this idea of interwar era as one of deglobalization, but really the literature felt like it was incredibly well-developed from the 90s onwards. There's discussion of the Cold War as isolated episode, as you mentioned, and then the late 19th century. What happens if you try to jump over these time periods? Do you actually see any kind of productive narrative that strings through there? Some of the areas that I think are really interesting when you take this perspective is the same dilemmas, tensions and conflicts remain, even if the specifics change. So this problem of regulation and prohibition, are you trying to target specific types of arms? Or are you trying to look at spaces or are you trying to look at specific groups of people? All of these different regulatory systems have their drawbacks and loopholes that can be exploited. But over and over again, the effort at trying to remake these different kinds of systems in order to try to come up with one that will be airtight, only to have the same problems come up over and over again in terms of how embargoes and prohibition systems are overcome. The first effort to internationally regulate the arms trade goes back to 1890 with the Brussels Convention. There's a continuity over 130 years or so of trying to do the same thing over and over again seems to get lost when this is presented as an entirely new problem of the last 15 years because now the WTO has admitted certain countries and things like that. So the really present discourse, I think, was really missing out on a lot of this.
0: What role are arms playing in Germany's deviant globalisation throughout the 20th century? And then what is the overall picture that you're finding by studying arms and some other commodities?
1: All of them do have their own unique dynamics that are going on due to the nature of, in some cases, their materiality, in some cases the moral understanding of how they function in society. And it's really interesting looking at them in parallel and comparison that you see these come about. So one of the other focuses I have in particular is looking at the drug trade, this issue that both drugs and arms are things that can't be completely And the pharmaceutical industry is something that's incredibly necessary for any modern society, as is in arms for security purposes. But the process of production of these things takes on very different forms and the different kinds of regulatory system. So in the case of arms, this problem of distinguishing military versus non-military use, you see something similar happen in the drug trade, but with different results, where in Germany, major manufacturers like Bayer and Merck produced heroin and cocaine as a pharmaceutical product. This really gets tied up with the dynamic around trying to regulate opium in China and the expansion of regulatory efforts by Americans, British and Chinese officials to expand out prohibition in East Asia to also include manufacturers in Europe. Rather than seeing with the arms trade, companies continue producing, well, creating sort of some technical fixes. What we start seeing is efforts at export controls and then eventually actually a shift where illicit black market manufacturing even takes off. And you have the manufacturers of medicinal heroin actually get cut out of the pipeline because it becomes easier for criminal groups to access pharmaceuticals from illegal manufacturers once the cost of overcoming official prohibition systems and regulation becomes too high. And at the same time, I think you see this with the arms industry, but the level of technical sophistication makes it much harder to do that. You can take a couple of chemists, send them off to a country that isn't subject to a treaty regulation in the 1920s and 30s, and it's much easier to pull together opium production than it is to create a factory that makes submachine guns at the same time. Military weapons aren't something that are distributed widely in society. But when it comes to the issue of narcotics, this issue of individual addiction and moral complaints about this, that there's mobilization by different groups on the morality of the international arms trade, but it takes a very different turn when it comes to actually looking at society around you and the idea of a moral panic about society itself falling apart due to mass addiction. Moral campaigning, international regulation, technical adjustment to deal with prohibition regimes, it's all there but the materiality of these substances and the way they function in society creates very different outcomes.
0: Ned Richardson-Little, thank you very much and that is the Red Set Transformative podcast ending 2022 with a bang and tune in next year of course for equally as explosive subject matter. You have been listening to the Transformative podcast produced by Red Set in Vienna.